A payroll and HR company needs to be prepared for whatever is going to happen. You could say that over 70 years of experience helping businesses all over the world run smoothly is good preparation. But for ADP, that's not enough. To make sure millions of people are getting paid on time and in compliance, we're staying on top of each new piece of legislation. So when it comes down to it, ADP isn't just a payroll and HR company. We're the company that helps you navigate the complexities. ADP, HR talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill, and a political commentator for KNX in Los Angeles and WGN Radio, News Radio in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me or my political polling company, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach out to me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Today on Deadline DC... Uh, we have two guests. In the first half hour, our guest is Hope Fry, who is the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. She's here to discuss the sorry plight of sad plight of immigrant children on the Mexican border. Then in the second half hour, our guest is Vina Venter-Traman, who is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. She's here to discuss uh, a new project that the Globe is undertaking called uh, The Emancipator, which is an anti-racist uh, multimedia platform. Uh, before we bring on Hope, we have a clip uh, from uh, Donald Trump, who uh, reverts to type and beats up immigrants uh, in this uh, segment from Fox News bringing the violence to our country because many of the people coming are not nonviolent people they're violent people many of the people coming uh, these countries don't send out their finest and in some cases i'm sure you have wonderful fine people but you also have criminals you have uh, murderers you have uh, sex traffickers you have a lot of very bad people coming into our country that, of course, was our hope, gladly former president. Our guest in this half hour is Hope Fry, who is the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. Hope is an internationally recognized immigration lawyer focused on disadvantaged populations, especially women and children. 
Uh, she, uh, Project Lifeline is a nonprofit focused on children who are, were immigration detention uh, in jails or shelters or uh, ICE detention facilities. She has testified before House, House and Senate about the conditions and confinement of children uh, in border facilities. Uh, the website for Project Life. Uh, Lifeline is projectlifeline.us, and uh, the Twitter handle is Pro Lifeline. Uh, Hope, I'm glad you're uh, with us again. You know, listening to that clip from Donald Trump, he uses almost the same exact words he did back in 2017 when he uh, announced for president, uh, and he decided that he was going to make a political career uh, bashing immigrants, uh, making you know very general statements about uh, people who were just trying to come to this country uh, to find freedom and economic opportunity. Uh, I find this very. Do you want to say anything about the the, the clip from Trump? I I find it. You know, I just I hate it. Uh, hi, Brad. Thank you for having me as your guest again, and it's nice to see you here. Um, I would have to say that I don't hear him. I just don't hear him. Uh, his voice was meaningless when he was president, and it's really meaningless today. He put us where we are as a country, not just with immigration, by his racist and cruel and inhumane policies and practices across the board. Um, so I want to just tune him out, and I want to say that the look we have at the border today uh, is an opportunity for us. It creates, it's, it's created by Donald Trump by the many things he did, but it creates today an opportunity for us to change the way we think about immigrants uh, and how we take care of them, and especially how we take care of children. Okay, let's start with this. There's been a lot of talk about what's happening on on the border in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the Republicans uh, ramped up the issue. Uh, the minority leader in the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, uh, led a delegation of uh, GOP members to the Mexican border last week. Yeah, I guess it was last week. Uh, is first of all, is there a crisis at the border? Well, there's a problem. Certainly with children, we have a huge number of children, 10,000 in February, and we expect that there are more children who are yet to come, more than that each month for the next few months, because we're now in the spring migration um, cycle. And the things that are driving people, children included here, are not going to change. They're getting worse. Um, first of all, there's the pandemic and the lack of response of other governments to that. More importantly, these are global climate change refugees, many of them. And but when I say that, I don't just mean uh, the global warming that's caused uh, iota and eta hurricanes and other uh, uh, heat-driven things, but I'm talking about what happens when you have climate change that dri it drives poverty. And poverty fuels violence, and violence creates persecution, and that's the basis on which people can, come, can claim asylum. So we have a lot of children coming, um, and we are not prepared to take care of them. We have the legacy of the Trump uh, baby gels and the Trump cruel policies. 
when he expelled children uh, during the last year uh, because of the pandemic. Um, so we do, we have a bad situation at the border, we have a bottleneck, but it's not a situation that we can't, uh, we can't change and we can't climb out of. I think the first thing, Brad, that I want to talk about is Title 42 expulsions, and that is a policy that the last administration put in place where they used CDC rules uh, under Title 42 to say that people could not come in because there was a danger that they would spread infectious disease. There's absolutely no science behind this, but Trump used it to exclude adults, families, and children from entering. Courts pushed back on him and said the ACLU filed a suit, and they said you can't do that for children. The anti-trafficking laws require the United States to admit children, to screen them for trafficking, and to offer them protection of our laws, and to allow them court hearings where they can make their claims, if they can, for asylum and other relief that's available to them under the law. Okay. Well, let's, uh, l- let me uh, ask this. Uh, one of the most discouraging things uh, I've seen and, you know, been reading and watching whatever coverage there is recently is uh, there are still children uh, in those horrible uh, detention centers, uh, you know, surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, they look the pictures I've seen. So there are hundreds of them crammed into the small spaces. Uh, and this is the same, pro- you know, we, you were on the show last year sometime, and basically we were describing the same situation. Uh, so, you know, what, what is the Biden administration doing and what can they do uh, to try to improve the conditions of, of children who are coming sure. across the border? We have some 4,000 children held at the Border Patrol facility in Donna, Texas, a facility built for 250 kids. So the conditions that we found there two weeks ago are exactly, Brad, what we found in the same place in 2019, exactly the same. Um, The situation, it's a complicated situation, uh, but let's start with this Title 42 expulsion. If I come in with my child, I will be sent back to Mexico, expelled for this fake COVID, pretextual COVID reason. So I may send my child back in without me because my child, by law, has to be kept here. If there wasn't, if we did away with the specious Title 42 expulsion, then mom and child could come in and they could be released together and you'd never have that child held in Border Patrol. There are 600 children, Brad, who have been held in that hell, crammed together without adequate food in freezing conditions for more than 10 days. Also, if we had a practice of admitting children and allowing them to, with, with their uh, trusted caregivers and allowing them to be released safely with their trusted caregivers as sponsors. Okay, I hope I'm going to have to uh, interrupt you. We're going to a very short commercial break. Our guest is Hope Fry, the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. We'll be back right after these messages.
Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. My guest in this half hour is Hope Fry, who is the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. We're here to discuss the sad plight of children at the Mexican border. I just want to remind our radio audience that if you'd like to watch the show as well as listen to it, uh, you can now see us on Periscope TV at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also watch us on Facebook Live at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live. And finally, you can view us on YouTube at tinyurl.com, Brad on YouTube. Uh, Hope, uh, the uh, Joe Biden on the campaign trail last year talked about the inhumane conditions on the Mexican border and the way that the Biden administration uh, treated immigrant children. Uh, has the Biden administration done anything to fix those fix that situation? Well, first of all, President Biden came in with good messaging. He came in and said, there's a new guy in town and we treat people like we want to be treated. And he's done that very aggressively. He's ended a number of policies, withdrawn regulations and done other things that restored protections for children um, and, and have been been good. Um Mayorkas is looking at doing something that's long overdue. At the border, we need to change the way we see kids, we receive them. We need to have reception centers uh, that are staffed by well-trained child welfare workers. And we need to receive children and process them for safe release to sponsors at the border. The majority of children can be safely released. 90% go to family, more than 50% go to parents. Um, we need to, to change the way we receive children at the border. Mayorkas is going to put HHS, uh, Health and Human Services personnel, in the Border Patrol processing stations um, in some capacity or other now to try to help manage children, to try to screen them so vulnerable children um, go to different places than these large congregant care settings. I think my own feeling is that the Biden administration is trying. They've inherited a bad situation. But right now today, Brad, he could end Title 42 fake COVID expulsions right now, and that would really ease things up. It will not give us the look that Texas Governor Abbott says, of, and, and a former president says, of hordes of dangerous people streaming across the border. No, it will allow us to orderly admit families and children, children with families, small children with families, um, in the way that our law provides. And Title 42 should be ended today while you and I are talking. Okay. Uh, I recently, I just saw a tweet uh, before the show started uh, from Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. And the gist of his tweet was, what, why do we care if we treat you know, immigrants at the Mexican border, you mainly or not, because they're violating United States law uh, just by being here. So why do we care at all about the conditions? 
Oh, it's actually, excuse me, uh, uh, Mark, our producer just corrected me. It was uh, Senator Cronin of uh, Texas. Uh, if you've testified before Congress, what would you tell Senator Cronin if he said that to you while you were testifying? I'd say, Senator, apparently you've never opened a law book. The law that we are bound by, United States law passed by the Congress, signed by the president, requires us to offer people who come to the United States seeking protection from persecution the opportunity to present their claim in our immigration court. And if they are qualified uh, to be granted asylum in the United States, we have other uh, uh, protections that we are required by law to offer to children. When people are coming and they have a legal right to come, then we must treat them properly, respectfully, humanely, especially children. So I would say to the congressman, pick up a law book, friend, and then let's have a conversation. Okay. Let's talk about, you know, we, we again, we seem to be engaged in a constant uh, situation of crisis management with immigration. Uh, and it seems to me part of the problem is there is no very little discussion, certainly among on the Senate side, uh, because of the Republican power there about a long term solution to this uh, situation. In your mind, what would be the long term solution for dealing with immigration so we aren't constantly faced with this crisis management aspect? Uh, that's a really good question, Brad. First of all, I think we need to lighten up on the optics. I mean, we have a situation. Let's not grind it. Let's not have all these horrible pictures and fake kidnappings and these things. The first thing. The second thing is something the Biden administration is doing. They need to look at our foreign policies towards the countries from which the immigrants are coming, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Mexico. And we need to try to help those countries restore an economy and a civil society. People don't want to leave their homes. They flee their homes because they have to. So let's go go and put a lot of effort into addressing root causes at home. And then let's be open, Brad, to reimagining the entire way we receive people. And to do that, we have to have some agreement that we need a new way. For children, we should say children are vulnerable, and we're actually going to have a system, a procedural system in place that welcomes them and protects them. There is no easy solution to this, Brad, but unless we want to have a real conversation across party lines and quit the posturing, quit the rhetoric, what uh, the, uh, former president just said on Fox TV is unhelpful. We are going to have people coming here. We need to pr not stop pretending like they're not going to come because we build a wall or we're inhumane. People are going to come. Let's recognize the reality and then come together without all the name calling to try to imagine solutions. This is the United States of America. And you can't tell me that working together, we can't come up with a real solution. When people say we can't do release at the border because of trafficking, I say we have the best law enforcement and trafficking in the United States. We have child welfare workers trained to identify traffickers. We can at the border deploy these people within our uh, release system so children are not released with anybody suspected of trafficking. We have the expertise to distinguish between families and traffickers. 
We just aren't doing it. Let's deploy the amazing people we have in our government to do the work that they're trained to and run things in a way that makes sense. And I hope that, you know, it's complicated, Brad. That's not a full answer, but I hope that's a beginning place for the conversation. Well, thanks for uh, joining us, Hope. Uh, you know, this is uh, a horrible situation, and especially the way, uh, I, you know, I see those pictures of those kids in the cages on the Mexican border, and it just seems to me it screams that this is everything that America should be against. And I think it's incredibly uh, discouraging to see this happening over and over again. So I hope wake up in Washington especially uh, thank you very much Hope our guest was uh, Hope Fry the founder and uh, co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline which tries to help kids uh, on the Mexican border we'll be back with more Deadline DC after this message Welcome back to NYPC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Uh, first, my thoughts of the day. The Republicans are doing everything they can to distract from the Biden administration's immediate and aggressive response to the COVID-19 pandemic and the ailing, uh, ailing economy. The Republican battle plan is to bring cultural issues to a high boil. They will continue their efforts to demonize and denigrate immigrants. The party will also play the cultural wild card with attacks on a corporate decision to backlist old Dr. Seuss books and will rail against Mr. Potato Head's gender transformation. Anything but to talk about the pandemic and the economy. The diversion won't work. The diversion didn't work in the last midterm election in 2018, and it won't work in 2022. Back then, Republicans failed to uh, develop a comprehensive response to the public cry for better health care. And instead, they attempted to scare Americans about a mythical, massive caravan of immigrants approaching the, uh, the Mexican border uh, to do damage to the United States. On election day, the Republicans lost control of the House. The national exit polls demonstrated that Americans were much more worried about health care than immigration. The GOP, GOP attempt to change the subject is thin gruel to Americans, hungry for recovery from a pandemic and reconciliation from political hate. Now we have a clip from Vice President uh, Kamala Harris on her trip uh, last week to Atlanta to talk to uh, Asians concerned about the murders of uh, several Asian women last week. Racism is real in America, and it has always been. Xenophobia is real in America, and always has been. Sexism, too. Okay. That was Vice President Harris. Our guest in this segment is Bina Venkatraman, editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. Previously, she was a journalist for the New York Times and served as a senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama White House. 
Uh, she is the author of The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. Her Twitter handle is BinaJV, that's B-I-N-A-J-V. Uh, she's here today to talk about the uh, Emancipator, which is a new project that is being undertaken by the Globe. And as a regular reader of the Boston Globe, I'm proud to see my hometown newspaper doing this kind of thing. Uh, Bina, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you heard the clip where uh, Vice President Harris uh, reminded Americans that racism is alive and well in this country, which brings us to the Emancipator. Tell us about the Emancipator. Well, thanks for having me on, Brad. It's great to see you again. You're welcome. And, uh, the Emancipator is really an effort to reimagine and kind of resurrect the newspapers founded uh in the 19th century that ran throughout the 19th century that were really abolitionist newspapers that provided a platform and a megaphone to opinions about slavery and against slavery and that helped bring about the end of slavery in the United States. And importantly, many of those newspapers were run right here in Boston. And what we're trying to do with The Emancipator is create a publication, a digital first publication that works across different modes from video to newsletter uh, to data visualizations that does the same thing for slavery in the 19th century uh, for racism today, which is to say, accepts as reality that we have a problem with racism in this country and indeed throughout the world, and that instead ask the question of what should we do about that problem instead of trying to convince people we have a problem instead says what are the sets of solutions that that we need in our society in order to end this problem and in the 19th century when publications like the liberator and the emancipator and the north star were being published people needed ideas they needed to be able to imagine a future without slavery in this country and these newspapers provided a forum for people who were really saying our society could work differently and here's how it could work and here's how it could happen and similarly i think today people have trouble imagining our society without the ingrained racism whether you're thinking about policing or education or healthcare uh, we've come to accept it as normal and that's the reason why uh, the Boston Globe Opinion Section and the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research, founded by Ibram X. Kendi, are collaborating to create this new emancipator. Yeah, I, uh, when I uh, teach uh, college courses uh, in political science, I always remind my students here that uh, Boston has also, uh, always been, for going back to the American Revolution and then the anti-slavery movement, a hotbed of troublemakers uh, advocating for democracy uh, and against slavery. So I'm glad that the uh, Globe and Boston University are continuing uh, that tradition. Uh, talk to, I want you to tell us about some of the people who will be involved in this. I was uh, looking at a story about it, and you've got a lot of uh, very prominent people involved in The Emancipator. Well, the most important person uh, who's involved in this effort is Kimberly Atkins, who is a Boston Globe opinion columnist who will be the lead columnist for The Emancipator. So she's sort of the one person we know will be on the staff of this hybrid newsroom between BU. Kimberly and was on the show a long time ago, a couple of years ago. I 
imagine that, yeah. And there are other, we have just an extraordinary group of luminaries, thinkers, scholars, journalists who've agreed to join our advisory board, who will be playing a role in really guiding us and pro providing us advice, it includes Sewell Chan, my counterpart at the LA Times, who's the editorial page editor there, it includes Eddie Gloud, who is a professor at Princeton and the author of Begin Again, uh, which is really about James Baldwin's America and how resident uh, his ideas are today. Uh, we um, have scholars like Annette uh, Gordon-Reed, Heather McGee, uh, there um, are journalists uh, including Joy Reid, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, Emily Ramshaw, who is the CEO and founder of The 19th, uh, co-founder of The 19th, which is an uh, independent nonprofit newsroom dedicated to covering issues of gender. Uh, in this country. So we have just a wonderful group of people. We're really grateful to be working with them. Uh, we're really on the ground floor right now. What we've just announced is that we are doing this partnership, that we are reviving this uh, paper, but also that we're searching for two editors-in-chief, co-editors-in-chief, one of which will sit in the Boston Globe newsroom and one of which will sit at Boston University at the Center for Anti-Racist Research, and for them to really chart this vision, to take this concept, this idea of reviving these newspapers for today, and really bring uh, a strategy and a plan and hire a staff to get that done. Okay. Let me ask you this question. Why now? I mean, why don't you explain why now? It just, you know, I remember reading about the immense your effort last week, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, why are we still troubled by these issues? You know, I had this probably fantasy back in, you know, 2012 when Barack Obama was reelected as president. Here we have a president, a black president who's been elected twice. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe better times are ahead. Maybe Americans can finally escape the scourge of racism. But if you look at what's happened happening recently, it's pretty ugly out there. You have uh, attacks uh, physical and verbal against Asians. Uh, we had a segment, the first segment was about the conditions at the Mexican border. Donald Trump is now on the air again, you know, you know, bad mouthing uh, Mexican immigrants. What What is happening to this country and why do you need to emancipate her now? Well, this country has a long history with racism. I mean, racism is really uh, something that goes back to the founding of this country. If you think about the ways in which uh, people had to think about the Native Americans who were living here in order to dominate them and to colonize this country, uh, to create the United States of America. And this Jill Lepore is her brilliant book. Um, uh, yeah, that is a great book. I, I yeah, yeah. really, really goes into that in a much deeper way than I'll be able to hear. Uh, but the idea that uh, that we've had this problem that and and this sort of fiction and construct of race and that people of certain races are somehow inferior and that we built that into our systems, whether it's uh, who's admit, admitted into elite schools or uh, who gets access to banking, uh, who gets access to healthy food, who gets access uh, to good housing or education. So it's really, it runs across our society. And you're right, the acts of violence bring it to the fore. So the killing of George Floyd, 
certainly created more consciousness among uh, Americans of all races that this is a problem, though I think for many communities and people of color in this country, that's been apparent before these recent acts of violence. And so I think what the opportunity is with a project like this is to say, this is not just about singular news events, which, you know, we all know, we, you know, as people who work in the news industry, um, you know, events. Hey, you know, we're going to have to take a brief okay. break here. Sure. Uh, my guest is Bina Venkatraman, who is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, talking about her new project with Boston University, The Emancipator. We'll be back, right back after these messages. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. And uh, our guest is Bina Venkatraman, who is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, who's here to talk about a new Boston Globe project with Boston University, uh, The Emancipator, which is an anti-racist multimedia platform. Uh, One of the things, hopefully, the uh, Biden administration uh, will be more uh, willing to uh, listen to pleas for racial tolerance uh, than Donald Trump's administration was. It couldn't be any worse, I guess. Um, How do you hope to use the emancipator uh, to influence public policy, especially with the new presidential administration? Well, I think that the emancipator will be a forum and a platform for important debates on the part of the spectrum that's focused on solutions. So there are a lot of people writing about and pointing out where there are racial disparities or pointing out when these acts of violence happen, decrying hate crimes and so on and so forth. And that journalism has a great degree of purpose and value, and it's important to keep keep those conversations going. But I think the emancipator has the opportunity to do something a bit different and a bit more. And this is one of the reasons I'm glad we're partnering uh, with scholars, um, that we're collaborating with scholars rather to do this in a way that's really grounded in academic research and evidence and data, which is to say we need to have debates about what ought to happen to fix these problems. So if you recognize, for example, that black Americans have an extraordinary amount of housing debt, Uh, Well, once you recognize that problem, um, what are the policy solutions that ought to be put forth and what are the pros and cons of those different policy solutions? Well, people have lots of different opinions about that if you really get into that question. Uh, Similarly, if you want to ask, how do you improve the equity um, uh, in higher education, the access to higher education for all different kinds of Americans of different genders, different identities, uh, different races, uh, different backgrounds, um, immigrant status? Well, the answer might be to do something that has to do with the admissions criteria. It might be something to do with communities. It might be all of the above. But the important debates about how you fix that problem, once you recognize it's a problem, could be had in a venue like The Emancipator. And I see that as a powerful way to inform uh, the agenda of an administration, the Biden administration, certainly. Uh, But importantly, I think it can also influence state and city government uh, around the country uh, to provide a template and provide models of solutions of solving these problems. Okay. Uh, let me ask you about a uh, couple of particular uh, racial issues. Uh, first of all, uh, we, uh, week before last, um, eight, I believe, 
number of Asian women were killed uh, by a gunman in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, there have been all sorts of press reports about uh, Asian Americans who've been harassed or assaulted. Uh, why all of a sudden? Uh, well, maybe it isn't all of a sudden, but why uh, we uh, why why is this happening? Uh, you know, the problem seems to be getting worse instead of better. Is this have anything to do with the pandemic? Uh, what is going on here? Why are Americans all of a sudden, you know, assaulting and killing uh, Asian Americans? Well, there is there are some organizations that have documented a rise in incidents of hate crimes against Asian Americans and slurs against Asian Americans over the course of the pandemic and who would point to Donald Trump and Fox News and others and their use of terms like China virus, their blame of China um, for this illness and would point to that as the cause of that. And, um, you know, it's been really hard to document exactly how much these crimes or these incidents are increasing. And there's a lot of dispute, honestly, about the data and about the reports. But we do know that these kinds of incidents tend to be underreported, particularly when they happen in immigrant communities uh, or communities of recent immigrants, where even there might be language barriers to reporting to police and making these incidents known. So there's a real problem. And it it maybe and um, likely has increased in the fan, the flames have been fanned by the, the previous president and his uh, cronies. Uh, but I also think that if you look back at the history of this country, there is anti-Asian uh, racism and incidences of anti-Asian racism uh, throughout it. I mean, this was the country where Japanese people were interned during World War II, where, you know, were, were held in camps. Um, this is a country where there have been, um, you know, cartoons uh, in the pages of major newspapers, you know, as recently as several decades ago, uh, depicting Asian people in, in, uh, in a way that's very stereotyping and negative. So it's not the case that this is something new in American history. And I think it's important for people to recognize that because it both makes clear that the problems we have today are not some new ill, though they might be increasing or they might have factors around them that make them worse or harder to deal with right now. Uh, but importantly, makes clear that we need to get to the root of some of these problems and that we need to start getting much more serious about not just condemning acts of racism or racial violence, but thinking through the ways in which racism is reinforced and inferiority is reinforced for entire groups of people in this country. Uh, it's, it's a travesty and it's, it's a way of America betraying its own ideals. The founding ideals of this country are about equality and liberty for all. And so this is the unfinished work of the American project we're talking about. This is nothing less than the founding principles of this country that we're talking about. It's not about what happens to X group or Y group. It means that America is not America until we deal with these problems. Okay, uh, let, let's another one. Uh, let, and during the presidential election, uh, there was a significant increase in uh, turnout uh, among racial minorities, and overwhelming numbers of them voted for Joe Biden. Now, there are two ways, basically, the Republican Party could respond to its weakness uh, with African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans and Asian-Americans. One, it could try to position the GOP as a 
party uh, that is uh, friendly to the uh, uh, hopes of minority Americans to be full-blown partners in the American dream um, or could stop them from voting. Uh, and there are efforts right now in many states across the country uh, to restrict uh, voting mechanisms that gave African Americans and Latino Americans and Asian Americans uh, more opportunities to vote. Uh, and it just seems to me that uh, you know there is some se- uh, uh, there is some effort at the at least in Congress. Uh, to uh, expand voting rights for African, there's a John uh, Lewis bill, uh, which I believe has passed the House of Representatives, uh, that would expand voting opportunities uh, for members of minority groups. Uh, there is uh, the uh, For the People Act, uh, which it does, I know has passed the House of Representatives, which expand voting opportunities. Uh, it just seems to me this is so counterproductive for the GOP in a political process. You're supposed to add to your vote, uh, not try to subtract it. Uh, what could the GOP do to make itself more attractive uh, to minority voters? That's a great question. It is something I hope the emancipator can get uh, start to articulate is, you know, what would a Republican agenda that actually respects human rights and civil rights look like? Because it, it is, you know, ultimately going to be the death knell of the Republican Party if they cannot uh, appeal to a broader base, a broader demographic, though. You're absolutely right. In the 2020 election, there were certain pockets of um, Latino and uh, black voters that did support Trump. And it's mysterious, but we know that part of it has to do with misinformation campaigns. Part of it has to do with other uh, related issues. But yes, there's this concentrated effort. I mean, you look at what's happening in Georgia, where the, the vote was audited multiple times. We know that the 2020 vote was a reliable outcome in that state and, you know, that Georgia went blue um, and elected two Democratic senators and Joe Biden. And the effort to close down weekend voting and prevent uh, some of the efforts like Souls to the Polls, which we know has organized the black vote in Georgia over the course of many years, uh, is just a blatant attempt to keep some people out of American democracy to prevent certain people from participating. And it is uh, it is deeply concerning. And if the Senate could get itself together to make an exception for uh, the filibuster so that a simple majority uh, or could could actually pass um, the the for the people act to secure voting rights, that would be the best way to ensure that uh, there's a le- more level playing field, that, that Democrats are actually a- able to get to the polls and vote. And for that matter, people, no matter how they're voting uh, in these states, have good access to the vote. Uh, Bina, thanks very much for joining us today and good luck to the emancipator. I uh, wish you the best of luck on what I consider a very important undertaking. Uh, that's it for uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon today. I want to thank our guest, uh, Hope Fry of Project Lifeline, uh, Bina Venkatraman, who of the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, uh, Leslie Marshall will be back tomorrow, so make sure you listen to her. Be safe and be strong in these troubled times. I'll talk to you soon, back on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. 11 bodies, 10 years, and countless theories. 
I'm talking about the Long Island serial killer case. It was just how many bodies were being found in one area. I was shocked. Follow us, Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter, on Unraveled, Long Island Serial Killer. And to follow our investigation even further, don't miss our all-new special Unraveled, The Long Island Serial Killer, streaming now, exclusively on Discovery+. Plus. Cousin Sal here, letting you know that nobody does sports like FanDuel Sportsbook. All new users get a $1,000 risk-free bet when you sign up and make your first deposit. Just place your first bet and get up to $1,000 back if you don't win. Sign up today, FanDuel.com slash Sal. 21 plus and present in Michigan. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problems? Call 1-800-270-7117 for confidence. Help. 